Okay, you all good? Let's do it. Hello and welcome to the B2C Lead Generation Podcast. Welcome back to the B2C Lead Gen Podcast. My name is Daniel Hopewell, here with my co-host Simon Delaney, and this is episode 35, We Need to Talk About ROAS. And just to clarify, when we say ROAS, we of course mean return on ad spend. And to help us have this talk, we've got Kevin Bauer from Kessel Digital today. And just before I introduce him, let me say he's got some strong opinions on the subject, so it should be a, should be a fun one. Welcome to the show, Kevin. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yes, it's always fun to take a position and see uh, people's reaction and get the conversation started based on that. It's definitely more interesting that way. And yes. So for people definitely. listening, before we we have this podcast, I want to. I think I need to set the scene because we're on a video call and some people are watching this. But for the ones listening, um, I can see a stormtrooper over one side. I think I can see Darth Maul to the other, but it's it's kind of obscured slightly. And then what looks like a collection of pristine sort of figurines oh there was a yoda there i assume that was full yoda not baby yoda but i couldn't quite tell and then yeah lots of like pristine looking figurines um where are you yes so i (laughs) i'm in a galaxy far far away um (laughs) i'm based in minneapolis um but your listeners that may remember me from my time in england i live most of my adult life in the uk uh working at yahoo and some other places and so um made a great network of connections there they will all remember my favorite store was the action figure store just uh, just across the street from our office at, at Yahoo. So I'm a big, big collector bought, of Star Wars whole, action figures. You've bought the whole Sorry? store and put it in. Your, and I see you've bought that whole store and you've got it sitting behind you in the office at the moment. Is that right? Indeed, indeed. I, I, have, I have yet to lose a Zoom background competition. <laughs> <laughs> are these the figurines which are like you know, massive collector's items now? So they're ones from the original stalls and stuff. Are they... Um, yeah, could you sell them for thousands? Yeah, some of them are quite valuable. Somewhere over here, apologies for those who can't can't see, but somewhere over here is a very rare Boba Fett. It's right. worth several thousand dollars. I can't I can't see. I'm looking backwards, but yes. And how much? Did you, um, how much did you yes. buy it for? Should what? How much did you buy it for? If it's worth that much? Oh, now? I don't know, five quid, something like, something like that. Wow. What, what back, back in the days this is, this before your... dig, before digital took over, we were just talking about this the other day. My wife and I, she's as into this as I am, and we collected most of these in the UK. And you know, back in those days, late '90s, early 2000s, there were still toy stores all over the place, and, and, and you went into stores. And so we would go into any random store that we thought might have action figures, and just go through the process of discovering these unique figures. And it was a really fun process. But in today's world, that's kind of gone away. If I if I wanted an action figure, I'd go to eBay or Amazon and buy it. And yeah, it's not as it's not as exciting. It's not as it's not as tactile of an experience. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, we've got off piece immediately because I've been distracted by your background. But um, yeah, that's yeah, like you say, coolest zoom background we've seen for sure. Thank you. Um, so we'll, we'll kick things off and get back to the marketing for people <laughs> who are listening in. Um, just, to get, just to start things, could you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Kessel Digital and what you guys do? Yeah, so uh, thank you for that. Uh, my name is Kevin Bauer. I am uh, the owner of, of Kessel Digital. It is a Star Wars reference for those who care to uh, try to figure that out. Um, but Kessel Digital is a consulting company and we help brands really focus on aligning their data, their marketing technology, and their marketing programs against business results. 
So obviously that is a lot of the things that you guys are involved in as well, helping people understand what should I be measuring? How do I measure it? How do I need to align my organization to make decisions differently tomorrow than I make them today based on the changes that I'm going to implement uh, and, and et cetera. I also work really closely. I do have to do have to say I work really closely with uh, some other partners, Canton Marketing Solutions based out of the UK, who I think you guys know, and also Arkle uh, Network based out of San Francisco. I work really closely with those uh, those consultancies as well. So you all have sort of similar philosophies on marketing and things, don't you? I guess, which is why it's uh, it works pretty well. With those other companies. Yeah, there haven't been too many fist fights uh, over our over our <laughs> positions on things yet. Uh, they've yes, we've all tended to be pretty aligned on you know the the importance of understanding what it is that we are doing. Your your comment from this morning, uh, Simon, about intent was just so spot on. Um, we need to be really intentional about exactly what we're doing, why we're doing it, um, and and you know the measurement of that needs to be very intentional. Mm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's something we found that people miss with the idea of like the difference between consent and intent. And it's why a company can seem so awash with data, but in reality, like how much intent does that data actually ever have to become a customer? And you'll right. find, depending on how it's collected, very little. That's, yeah. Well, and it's it's this very similar, it's a very similar thing, say, in the, in the, from a media perspective too, because the wrong measurement has been driving people to accumulate, accumulate in this case, marketing impressions and, and thinking that that is a winning strategy, right? If I, if I increase share of voice, if I can just saturate the market, I'm going to win. But as with intent, what you're really doing is, is being very inefficient in the way that you deploy your marketing investment and overspending um, in a lot of areas. And in a lot of cases, um, you know, really acquiring the wrong types of consumers that aren't going to be good for your business long term. Yet you have a metric in front of you that is convincing you that things are going good because you're getting more marketing impressions. And there's a disconnect in there that needs to be solved. Yeah. Well, just jumping there, you mentioned um, Canton Marketing Solutions, and we yeah, we had a rabbit on the show about a month or so ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to kind of to reference that, so when we have guests on, we normally just have a few, you know, a conversation beforehand, discuss a few ideas, and then we we kind of just press press record and see what happens. It's like it's quite informal. Um, but I want to point out what happened during our kind of like I say research call. It wasn't really just an email, but you sent an email through, and um, the subject really caught my attention because it just said ROAS is evil, and you know, big exclamation mark. And I was like, mm-hmm. wow, this guy is gonna, he's he's not going to be sort of mincing his words. He's going to be he's very passionate about it, which I. Which I thought it was going to be great for the show, um, but we try and at least we at least pretend to be objective as we do this. Sure. You know, we try and sort of mm-hmm. get try and get the guest opinions. And so, just to kind of to start off and to kind of uh, intro it, what I, what I kind of want to know is what's your issue with Roas? What, what what's Roas done to you? Why is it so? You know, what's, what's your beef with it? Is, you make it sound like you make it sound like a dog. You know, like a dog's it's, it's Roas. Just, yeah, Roas has <laughs> is, is mortally wounded you. Um, yeah, no, he's pissed, why, why, he's pissed on your doorstep. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it is not it has not been been kind to me. It, but but actually, in, in reality, it has actually been very kind to me. But I have seen over 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 time its negative impacts. Um, somebody, by the way, I have I do have to say, in fact, it was Rob um, from the previous call called out why in in God's green earth did I not call it you know a menace. The phantom menace. <laughs> I, I have no explanation for that, but I just chose evil. 
Um, because as you said, I thought it would get attention. And I think it's something that really does need attention. What's happening in the market right now with all of the changes that we're all experiencing in the shifts to a cookie-less world and, and how do we deal with the changes from privacy and all of those things that we talk about ad nauseum, so I won't, won't repeat them here. If we don't change the underlying method in which we measure what we do and make decisions on, on what we do, we won't really move forward. What we'll end up with is an environment and an ecosystem that is built for one thing and a measurement system that is built for something else completely. And it will be really, really hard to align and get value out of those new technologies and those new processes without that. And when I think about ROAS, the reason why I think it is evil, and I chose such a strong word, um, part of it was to get attention, but I really do believe that it is evil because if you really step back uh, and go go all the way back to the days when digital marketing was first sprouting. ROAS was essentially a metric that was invented to try to convince people to move from fixed marketing budgets to variable marketing budgets. That's that's really the sole reason why it existed. People like me, I was on the I was on the sales side of of things at that time. I needed people to spend more money with me, and I couldn't do it if they had a fixed budget. So as long as I could come up with a metric that sounded sexy and was vague enough that you couldn't really pick it apart. Hey, if you're spending a dollar with me and I'm giving you $2 back or two pounds back in the, in the UK, of course, why is that a bad thing? And at the time, the whole industry, both the buyers and the sellers didn't understand what was happening well enough because it was so nascent that we all kind of grabbed onto this metric and said, yes, that makes sense. And fast forward 25 years, we've never really put the metric under scrutiny and asked, does it measure anything important? Does it, does it fundamentally change the way that I am, am driving my business? And I don't think that it does. I think it, is, I think it is really focused on the very top level of the funnel, which is uh, gross revenue for, for, for most brands. And revenue is not a return. And so I think that's a fundamental disconnect. And I think that, that has trained generations of marketers to, to think about that in, in the wrong way. Uh, and the other thing that I think that it does, and then, then I promise I'll, I'll, I'll stop. Uh, the other thing I, okay, I think it, at a macro level is it, it, it forces us to look at the wrong denominator in a, in a question. And so to get like unmathematic about that, what that means is we've grounded our measurement based on ad spend. What am I getting for this dollar? Well, A, we're measuring the wrong thing. But two, the ad spend isn't the source of value in an organization. It's customers that create value for an organization. So if we really want to understand how to make better decisions, the question isn't, what did I get for my advertising dollar? The question is, how many dollars did I spend to acquire the right type of customer? And how many customers did I acquire? And what is the lifetime value of that customer? Those are the salient metrics that will that will really drive success for a brand. So um, I just have two questions on this. So um, hmm. firstly, you mentioned ROAS has been very good to you. Is that in a previous life before it became evil? It's a bit like um, Darth Vader, where you sort of said, it is. Um, is that is that just because of the advertising in the past, like you said? So you're on the sales side, and obviously, you know your targets and KPIs and whatever else in the past were all built on the ROAS effectively that people were spending. Well, I think it's two. I think to be fair, it is both sides, and I think it's a great question. So it definitely benefited me when I was on the sales side for what you said, no question. But even on the buy side, it was it really drove 
many years of my career growth, to be perfectly honest with you, and many other marketers, because as I was able to get and secure bigger and bigger marketing budgets, that drove my own career, right? I went from managing a you know, $100,000 marketing budget to managing a billion dollar marketing budget and, you know, over time in, in different organizations. And that metric is what allowed us and allowed myself to go out and secure additional budgets that allowed me to do a lot of, a lot of things, some of which were great. Um, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that I regret my career or anything, but I just, you know, it, it, it really drove the expansion of, of marketing impressions. And then I ended up contributing to that not really realizing it until years later. But as, as I took that budget and saturated the market with it, I was contributing to the spamming of consumers as much as anybody else. And, um, and, and that was the wrong reason to be, to be sending a marketing messages. It's funny you mention it really. It, like, I, it, it's something I've mentioned, but not really talked about before that. Um, so, you know, my sort of beliefs in the, that you, touching it perfectly with like the intentless consent so i in the past we owned a media agency or effectively like a lead buying agency they used to buy a lot of leads for brands we made huge amounts of money from buying consent-based leads and selling them mm -hmm. onto brands or they you know work on their behalf um mm -hmm. and that effectively was money used to build software do everything else and it was during that time that your opinions get formed you almost can't have an opinion on this sort of subject whether it's ROAS whether it's consent versus intent unless you've lived both sides of the coin yes because I you know you're sort of talking about something that you haven't ever done or no experience in and so that it's I can only talk about it because I've lived both sides of it and I've seen I wouldn't say the damage because it's not like it kills anyone but the inefficiencies right. how it's bad for sales teams it's not great for marketing right. bad for brand awareness and you're effectively exactly the same with Ross is what's happening. Yes. Um, and, I, and I think the third component to that is, is having stepped out of that. Yeah. Because it's really hard to take a, to take a very critical look at something and invest the time and energy into the criticality of that review when you're in one of those two sides, because yeah. operational realities are, are operational realities. You're under pressure to do this, but once you are able to step out of that, like we are now and can see it from the side, now you're in a position to be able to to see it and talk about it and expose it. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned what they should be measuring. So um, I don't know if it's a single ticket item that brand is selling. So let's say a car, for example. Mm. Um, what should they measure? Well, there are a lot of metrics, of course, but um, I think that really the, the, the core question of marketing is there's, well, there's a couple of core questions. One is if I have a marketing dollar available to spend, where should should I spend it? Actually, I should say, should I spend it? And if I should, where and on whom should I spend that dollar? And so that's a very forward-looking view of marketing spend, whereas ROAS is a backwards-looking view of marketing spend. What did it do before? That's not interesting to me because I've already spent the dollars. In the context, when I spend my next dollar has changed from when I spent the last dollar. So a forward-looking metric is really critical. And to me, as we discussed earlier, the value in a brand is in its consumers, in its customers. And so grounding it in understanding lifetime value becomes really important. For most brands, the actual pivot point, if you will, of deciding how and where and when to spend marketing dollars 
really comes down to how much can I invest in my future earnings to generate an additional new customer today, which is basically understanding how much of that lifetime value for a consumer am I willing to spend upfront to acquire a new one? And the other one for a lot of brands, especially growing brands, to be fair, again, operational realities, cash flow can be a really big uh, factor for a lot of brands as well. And so it might be great to be able to go acquire new customers based on a lifetime value, but you may not have the cash to do it. And so being able to anchor, this is what it costs me to acquire a customer. Here's how much profit I will make from them in the next three to five years, whatever the, the right uh, term is for that brand. And then pegging that against my financial realities to say, how much can I invest today to, to achieve that is a, is a much better way than mm -hmm. saying, yeah, I, I generated more ad impressions last week, so I should I should generate more this week. Yeah, I, it's, it's really similar, actually, in terms of what we think about in terms of um, like CPLs versus CPAs. So mm. it's like this cost per lead, for example, doesn't matter, right? It's no. all about does it what's the cost per acquisition? That's really what you want to measure. And does it exactly right. like said fall within budget? Um, yes. And what's and that well, and even, the that's the lifetime value of the person as well. On average. Yes. Well, and, and even in the acquisition, make sure you're acquiring the right type of, of yeah. consumer, right? Yeah. Just because I, you know, in a in a retail setting, which is obviously different from a from a lead setting, but in a retail setting, I can acquire people all day long. But if I if I'm if I'm giving them 70% off to do so, and I'm overspending on marketing spend, and you're only ever gonna buy from me when I give you another 70% off coupon, do I really want to acquire you? Mm. Like, is that, that, that's not good for my business. So, um, so getting, getting, acquiring the right type of person is really critical as well. Yeah. One, um, one thing you mentioned there, Kevin, which I kind of want to come back to is sort of the demise of the cookie and or the, the cookie apocalypse. And as I've heard it referred to a few times recently. Um, but how, how do you, how do you see the sort of the demise of the third party ecosystem developing in terms of how it will cause people to reevaluate um, Robas and using that. Do you think that's going to happen? So that's happening soon, or will, will, will follow naturally, or is it something that's going to be faced with kind of a, a challenge to that? Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think we're at a really critical point, of course, um, because Roas really, you know, my position on it is Roas was really the driver, the creator of all of that demand for third-party cookies. Right? It, it was the thing that said, "Oh, I'm making more money than I'm spending, so therefore I should keep spending." So if you step far enough back, I'm I my position is is it actually created the demand that got us where we are today. So when we say, hey, we're dismantling that system now, which of course I'm a huge fan of, I think is absolutely the right thing for us to do. And there's a lot of opportunities out of that. But as I'm dismantling that system, I have to change the way that I'm measuring as well. So I think what's going to happen in the short term is brands are going to find the number getting more and more and more opaque as that, that system kind of breaks down, right? You can look at things as simple as Google Analytics 4, and now all of the data in Google Analytics is modeled. It's not actual data anymore. And so I'm modeling modeled data, which is never a good thing for brands. And so that's gonna get exposed as they try to figure out how to shift in, in, um, in, in the way that they target their media. And they're gonna have no choice really, but to, to anchor themselves in something else. Yeah, makes sense. What um, what what are people measuring as their return on ad spend? Can that vary by organization? 
Yeah, I think it's um, it's a really good call. I think it is. I think as marketers, we need to make sure that we are observing the financial acumen to to really show ourselves as profit generators for the business and not cost centers for the business. And we run a real risk of being perceived, at least by the CFO, as a, as a cost center, right? If they, if the CFO doesn't clearly understand and isn't clearly comfortable with the numbers that I, as a marketer, put in front of them, they're going to see me as a cost center, and that's not that's not good for my for my team. That's not good for my. Yeah, you ever heard that? Uh, have you ever heard that phrase that the the only two departments in a business ever that aren't a cost center are marketing and production? Yeah. Well, you need you need to make sure that you are right. Um, yeah. The, yeah. So so yeah, I I agree with that. But uh, so I do think though to your to your question, Dan, I do think the metric differs a little bit based on the business model. But I think it needs to be rooted in the actual profit and loss statement or P and L of the business, which is where I am always advising people. So I want to make sure that we're taking into account you know returns and cancellations and discounts, which by the way is a big one because. There's a there's a tendency to ignore the impact of of discounts in acquiring a customer, whether that's in a B two B or or B two C setting, because that introduces the question of was it my advertising dollar that, that got them, or was it the discount that that got them uh, in, into my business? And I need to be you know I need to have a good understanding of that. So I think rooting it in there, making sure I understand what my cost of sales are, what my cost of fulfillment is, and then getting down to whatever you determine in your organization is where the variable costs from acquiring a new customer kind of end. That's where you really want to anchor that, that, that profitability metric. It's, I, th- I think it's, we've touched on this before in another podcast. I can't remember which one, but the parallels with B2B. So I've been trying to think of what's the, what's the parallel with the sort of Chris Walker approach, which is um, MQLs, either stop getting them and using them incorrectly of what the um the equivalent is in b2c and i've been thinking it's this like consent versus intent and whatever else but it might actually be more related to roas in the term that you're using potentially um where the people are using the data incorrectly and Mm -hmm. using you know the reason why I was thinking consent versus intent is using like data that you can market to effectively as if you can be able to get a sale out of it just because you're allowed to market to it. Um, and measuring the wrong thing with ROAS effectively achieves the same outcome, which is a bunch of data um, that is never going to lead to anything and you're measuring success on that. Right. It's going gonna, it's gonna to steer you down the, down the wrong path. And, and, the, and that's, the, that's the sad thing because you feel good as you go down that path. It takes a long time to realize that you've diverged from where, from where you should be. Yeah. Um, and that's a lot of, that's a lot of wasted time in, 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 a, in a market moving as fast as ours. So how do marketing teams take this approach when you rock in and go after you're doing is wrong? <laughs> well, I try, I try to be a little more subtle. I, I am, <laughs> I am an American at the end of the day. So, um, you know, but so there is that, that I have, to, I have to combat, but I do try to be a little subtle. Is that what the stormtroopers says, says the guy with the stormtrooper yeah. in the background, right? I, I, I have, I have no right to say, say I'm being that's subtle. Ju- that's just a bit of backup in case things get a bit heated. <laughs> yeah. You know, honestly, what I have found is there is there is this kind of latent, if that's the right phrase, understanding this this kind of Spider-Man sense 
that ROAS isn't right. We we all kind of know it. It's been in the back of our brains for a long time that we don't really understand it because every time we get a report from a marketing agency and they're claiming you know how amazing they are and we're looking at the revenue numbers and they don't match the revenue numbers of the actual business, we scratch our heads and go, God, something isn't right here, but we've never been able to solve it. So to your, to your question, when I start engaging with consumers, they actually, they find it a breath of fresh air to start with. I don't find a lot of, a lot of pushback. I find a lot of, oh, thank you. Know, thank you. Yes. Okay. I knew there was something here. I still don't quite understand where I need to go, but you validated that my spidey sense has been right. Okay. I feel good about that. Let's talk about, you know, what I, what I need to do. So the, the introduction is, if, if you will, is, has been very welcome. The hard part, as with anything, is really getting into the detail of well, okay, you have to you have to fundamentally operate different tomorrow than today, and that is that is not an easy thing. That is a people, that is a process, that is an org structure, that is a, a budgeting thing and a forecasting thing, and we as marketers tend to really focus because they are of course really critical on our martech and our ad tech stack and and uh, you know our, our media and creative. And we absolutely should do that. I'm not like, absolutely, but we need to add to that the business acumen, the financial acumen and the planning and the operational strategy to, to, to make it work. And that's where, that's where the, the detail and the, the hard part is. Yeah. One, um, one thing I kind of want to touch on a little bit is you mentioned the lifetime value side of mm -hmm. it. And it's something we talk about in Legion all the time. And we sort of say, a lot of people, they think of Legion in a very transactional way. Um, you know, it's it's a very short-term process mm -hmm. and they want to see an instant kind of return on what they're doing. Um, do you, in a wider sense that they're sort of talking about it, do you, do you sort of find that, like, do you have to, do you see difficulties in people wanting, not willing to wait for that lifetime value to materialize before they can see the success of something, if you see what I mean? Yeah, we, we have a really hard time as, as an industry looking past the end of our nose, to, to be fair. Uh, and I think that is true in both B2B and, and B2C. Um, being transactional focused is like, I don't know, it's like an addiction, right? I, I, I can get the sale today. I, I got the sale and I got it in the door. I feel good. The challenge with that methodology, and again, I think we all kind of know it in the back of our, our minds, but it's hard to make the shift, is that I have no idea if it was an incremental sale. Did, did I just pull the sale forward? It was going to happen anyways in three weeks or seven weeks or whatever. And I just pulled it forward. And we all recognize that happens because to your point, Dan, we're in that conversation all the time with ourselves. I need, I need to drive sales this week. What am I going to do? And what, we, what that tends to drive is a behavior. I call it the curse of the comp, the curse of the comparative number. It drives this scenario where I'm being, if it's, what is the date today? September 16th. I'm being compared to September 16th last year, and I need to beat that number. And the, a transactional mindset brings us down to like the lowest common denominator and says, well, what was the promotion we ran on September 16th of last year? Oh, it was 25% off jackets. Well, we should probably do 25% off jackets again because we need to beat that number. And how is that a good strategy? If you're able to step back from that, how is that an intelligent strategy on how to spend my money and how to actually grow my business? It's really a strategy of how do I keep the treadmill going 
So I'm putting tons of effort and ton, tons of energy into this. I'm running, I'm running like crazy, but I'm not actually going anywhere. That, that to me seems, seems a flawed strategy. Yeah. I think it comes back to this like relationship as well with either prospects and your customers. Um, and this sort of follows with the demise of the third party cookie and a bunch of the way that marketing is going or the collection of people's data and the measuring of it and everything is mm -hmm. are you basing your relationship with a future person or a future customer on a transactional basis which is going to be i want that as quick as i can it comes back to your point are they going to be a good customer or is this like a meeting of minds where you're actually adding value and they're giving you value in return. And I think that's what everybody's missing because that's sort of where the future is going, I think, is less this transactional short-term mindset of like sale, sale, sale or more. Um, we can't, you know, we can't rely on future marketing and just vast amounts of cheap data being everywhere and then spray and pray and hope for the best you've got to actually build real relationships with people um, that you're not going to win in the short term, but you've got to build like long-term relationships with them. And the only way you can do that mm -hmm. is to approach them on the right level. And when you approach them on the right level, you have to measure it correctly. It comes back yeah. to like the ROAS idea as well, because otherwise you're putting your money in the wrong place because it's that measurement, which tells you where to place your money. Right. Right. In, 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 I just, I just love how you, how you said that. I, I Focusing on transactions, regardless of what industry and what side, B2B, B2C, we're, we're in, it, it takes our business and turns it into a commodity. And commodities are really hard to compete with. Like anybody can ship a product. Anybody can download a white paper. Anybody can, you know, um, de deliver services. Granted, people do it better than others and all that. But, but fundamentally, it, it just creates this commodity environment. And that's, it's just really hard to, to win at. So I, I agree. I think it's got to be about how do I shift to a relationship view? And when I, when I think about the measurement of that, I think one other thing to call out in there is there's a, there's a double-edged sword of, of how ROAS has a negative impact on that. Because on the one hand, it, it's forcing me to make bad decisions and acquire bad customers. I'm really acquiring transactions with no idea if they're incremental, no idea if they're profitable. I just, I feel good because I got the transaction in. But the other, on the other side, I'm missing that, you know, I could have acquired somebody if I, maybe I could have spent more to acquire a customer, but I didn't because I'm basing my metric in a single transaction. And so let's say, for example, that, my, you know, I think I'm going to make $20 on that transaction and that sets my threshold for marketing. Well, if I acquired the right person, I might've made 500 pounds off of that customer. Mm. And so maybe I could have afforded to spend a hundred pounds to acquire that customer. And I didn't do it because I was, I was too short term and thinking about that initial transaction. And so it actually hurts you on both sides. Yeah. hundred percent. Then you mentioned incrementality and I, I kind of want to push you slightly on that, Kevin. And, and sure. I guess in terms of getting a sort of non-actionable tip, but just uh, offering value to people listening, um, how, how would you suggest an alternative to measure and to calculate incrementality and you know, why, why does it matter so much? Yeah, so this is this is a great question. Um, incrementality. One of the one of the things that I really wish is that we, as digital marketers, had all grown up in the old school, if you will. Uh, apologies to everybody that that's still in that uh, for that for that saying, but the old school, you know, print direct marketing world. 
that world is so deeply versed and grounded in the concept of incrementality. And it's been hard to take those processes and that culture and bring it into the digital space. But I think that's exactly what needs to happen. Because really, even though they seem worlds apart, if you think about it, it's just a different form of media. What we're doing in, in measuring incrementality is getting really specific about my different audience segments so I can start to stratify customers, my best customers to my worst customers, and I can put them in these segments and, and therefore start to make decisions off of that. From an incrementality perspective, what that allows me to start doing and what is so critical is to have testing as part of the fundamental DNA of how I execute my marketing programs. In testing, I always have holdout groups going on anything that I am running. As a marketer, it, 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 towards the end of my client-side career, I would not invest a marketing dollar if it wasn't part of a test with a holdout group so that I could measure whether it was over a 30, 60, 90, or sometimes even a year-long period of time, what would have happened had I not spent that dollar? And that is really the critical thing. So can you as an organization find the discipline? And it's hard because it means you give up revenue in the short term, because I'm going to, rather than send my, my marketing communication to all million people, I'm only going to send it to 700,000. And that's hard, right? Because you're saying, well, that's 300,000 that I might not, I might not get a response from today. Well, you're, you're right. That, that is true. But the, the learning that you get from that holdout group you will get back exponentially in your next campaign when you realize who and where the, the value really came from and you can reallocate your dollars, you will more than make that up. I promise you. But that is the hard part is getting the, getting the culture and the permission to not market to everybody so that I can have a holdout group to measure the impact. It's a really good uh really good way of putting it what would you what would that holdout group be on though you like literally i mean is it would it be like an email list that you were sending to a facebook ad and you just not market some of them and market some that you were doing how what how would it physically be done yeah so it's, it's a great it's a great question so there's there's two different kind of levels of it one is is just simply doing straight up holdout groups the critical component of doing holdout groups is randomness which can be harder than it, than it seems, making sure you actually have a random sample of, of customers because you, you obviously don't want any bias in that, in that holdout group. Um, so I would always run uh, holdout groups for all of my marketing campaigns. So whether it was an email, Dan, to your point, uh, absolutely on every single email, there's, there, there would be a holdout group. And then and same thing if it was a Facebook campaign or et cetera, et cetera. Um, the next level of that though, is to go to what I call, what is called, I don't call it, what's called contact stream optimization, which is just a long-term view of holdout groups. Because what I really want to understand is how my marketing impressions impact you over our lifetime together. And so it's not just a single holdout group of a single email. I actually have multiple of these going. And in some of my holdouts, I might only hold out for 30 days of marketing uh, campaigns. For some holdouts, I might only remove my Facebook campaign and leave everything else the same. In others, I may say, I'm not doing any marketing, any paid marketing for nine months to this group. 
so that I can see what that is. And so I may hold out all marketing campaigns. And that's where I really start to understand what is the optimal number of marketing impressions by what channel to really impact the key metrics for lifetime value. That holdout group, what that then allows me to start doing is pegging when we think about the lifetime value component and we think about what makes up lifetime value. And in short, it's basically sales frequency, right? How many times do, how often do I purchase? How many times do I purchase? And what is the average order size when I purchase? Oversimplification, but it basically comes down to that. And so by doing these holdout groups, I can then start to understand what is the buying cycle? Simon, you're likely to buy from me every six months. Just the relationship that we have today, you're going to buy from me every six months. Okay, great. Now I understand when I need to start spending my marketing dollars to change your decision. You're not going to buy from me every week. That's not realistic based on the products that I sell or the services that I sell. But I do know that every six months you will. And now I can target my marketing to the right time and the right person. Great. I think, I think that's a, a really fascinating insight. Um, but I also, I can see how prospects of yours perhaps would be scared by some of that <laughs> ideas, you know, be, being told to sort of hold off to do things like this. I, I can, I can see the challenge that you may face in kind of overcoming those objections. Um, mm -hmm. And with that, I kind of wanted to bring it back around to, to Kessel and almost to, to wrap things up sort of by asking who your kind of ideal sort of clients are, who you work with. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean specifically the kind of profile mm -hmm. that they have. And, and just from that, we just so we can sort of understand the kind of the companies that are, are embracing these changes as you're suggesting, I think that'd be quite interesting to sort of know. Yeah, I, that, that, that's great. I, pre, I appreciate the question. So my particular um, focus, I, I'm doing a lot with direct-to-consumer businesses. Everybody is going direct to consumer these days, right? Uh, if, you're, if you're manufacturing something or making something, you know, you're trying to cut out the marketplaces and, and, and have that uh, direct relationship with the customer, which is all a result of third-party cookies going away and that whole ecosystem disappearing. I, I kind of have no choice anymore but to go direct to consumer. And so when I do that, there is a, uh, you know, all of these learnings completely change. Um, I, I fundamentally have to change my culture and my business approach when I, when I shift to a D2C kind of, kind of world. And so that's where I'm really, um, really focusing on. That's usually companies that are getting ready to scale. Um, a lot of times right now, of course, with COVID, there's a lot of brands, as we know, that have grown exponentially because of COVID, like overnight. And they're just hanging on by their fingertips saying, Oh my gosh, this is a fundamentally different thing. I talked to a to one business yesterday and they they moved from being able to do their business out of their garage and they now rented a 100,000 square foot warehouse space um, in in 6 months and they're like dear lord help me. <laughs> I'm now making real decisions measured in seven figures, you know, I need to I need to to get control of this before it goes away. And so that's what's really driving a lot of a lot of the activity. And I think that's happening at scale. Any brands from whether it's as small as going from a mom, mom and pop to something a little bit bigger, but also those brands that are like 10 to 300 million that all of a sudden are realizing you know, maybe a 50, 60% growth is, is very much realistic, but they need to get it under control before it happens. That's, that's kind of the sweet spot. These, just to reset, it's all like e-commerce DTC stuff, right? 
Yeah. That's, that's largely what I focus on. Yeah. 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 It's, cra- it's crazy, the growth, isn't it? It is. That's really interesting. Loads of amazing insights in there. And, you know, as we said, the, the title of this pod was we to talk about ROAS. And, yeah, we've talked about that in depth. And I think, uh, yeah, people listening will find that really, really good. Um, but, yeah, I want to thank you for being a fantastic guest. You know, we've really enjoyed your, sort of your passion talking about these things. And the I, I think we always like when we talk about ideas, um, guests talking about ideas on shows that are kind of broadly not even specific to themselves, I think always goes down really well. And really, we, we always enjoy them. Um, but yeah, thank you so much also for the for the Star Wars allegories we've been having in there. The but the battles are good and even it's been it's been an exciting one. We've really, really appreciate your time today, Kevin. Thank you. Yeah, you, you are most welcome. The, the, the honor is all mine. I will say, uh, I think you know this, but I'll say it for the audience anyways. I absolutely love what you guys are doing. Sorry with all, all the alerts. It's, it's the top of the hour. Um, I love what you guys are doing. Um, I have great, I lo- love having conversations with you guys on LinkedIn. Um, we, we just think so similarly. So let's let's keep the conversation going. 100%. Cheers, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Cool. Thanks for listening to the B2C Lead Generation Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe to hear more from those at the very cutting edge of the lead gen world.